Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Well, we're continuing our our AD 30 series, and I've entitled our message today, The Comeback, Getting Up After Failure. So we're talking about just getting up after failure, what happens in our lives when we make a mistake, and how do we respond to that? In his book, Breaking Open the Sky, Stephen Bauman writes, despite our near-phobic fear of failure, the facts suggest that it's actually a common, almost universal experience. 75% of venture capital-backed startups fail. 95% do not meet the initial expectations. 40% of chief executive officers don't last 18 months in their jobs. 70 to 90% of mergers and acquisitions fail to add shareholder value. And I own all those stocks. 81% of new hires don't work out. 99% of new patents never earn a penny. 95% of new products introduced in a given year fail. 88% of New Year's resolutions end in failure. 100% of all human bodies fail. Failure is common. And what's interesting to me is about how hard it is to move on from failure. How failure lingers in our minds and lingers in our hearts. It's one of our greatest fears. It's one of my greatest fears is is not to matter, to not measure up to expectations that I might have for myself. And I know you're wired the same way. Failures take on a life of their own because the brain remembers incomplete tasks or failures longer than any success or completed activity. Think about that. God has wired you to obsess about your failures. Thank you, Lord. It's technically referred to as the, I might be butchering this, but the Zagarnik effect. When a project or a thought is completed, the brain places it in a special memory. Hey, you did something good, we're just going to file that one away. The brain no longer gives the project priority or active working status, and bits and pieces of the achieved situation begin to decay. You forget about what works out. But failures have no closure. The brain continues to spin the memory, trying to come up with ways to fix the mess and move it from active to inactive status. That really helped me to understand, Paul. When we don't achieve something, when we fail, we continue to process that. When something goes well, we just move on from it. We're actually wired a little bit to obsess about failure. No wonder we worry. No wonder we ruminate. No wonder we replay the things that disappoint us in life. We're literally programmed to do it. We're so troubled by this as societies around the world that we're actually trying to deconstruct the very concept of failure. Usually this happens in the education systems first, and that's where it's happening. For some time, educators have faced accusations of dumbing down exams in order to compensate for increasingly poor student performances. The Professional Association of Teachers in Great Britain, however, recently proposed another solution, and that is banning the word fail from classrooms. Now, this actually took place quite a while ago. They wanted to ban the word fail from classrooms and replace it with the phrase deferred success. I love that. 
There's a lot of deferred success coming in my life. Not failure. Eliminating negative language, a spokesperson for the group said, would help avoid the lasting educational problems associated with the labeling of pupils. But applying this type of thinking to theology, to our faith, to practical theology, would lead us to eliminate the word sin. I didn't sin. I've just got some deferred obedience. I've got some delayed righteousness going on in my life. That's sin. But there's a fatal flaw in the easy speak with far-reaching consequences than either, far more reaching consequences than either unhappy students or poor test scores. Eliminating sin, eliminating the idea of failure from our faith eliminates the need for Jesus on the cross and a savior. And the fact is, if, if you're a person who believes in the Bible, we believe that there are standards that God has set and we don't meet those standards, we fail. God doesn't grade on a curve when it comes to ethical behavior. He's absolutely willing to extend grace and forgiveness, but the key to that grace and forgiveness is moral honesty and ownership in our hearts. And today I want to talk through one of the greatest comebacks in Bible history. A comeback in a life of a dude who really messed up to the point where all four Gospels had to record it, the poor guy. I want you to turn to John chapter 21. John chapter 21 is on page 90. If you don't have a Bible with you, just grab one in front of you. About three quarters of the way through, it's going to start over with page 1 in the New Testament. Just get to page 90 there. John chapter 21. We're going to read the first, about three quarters of this chapter. Now after these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. That's the Sea of Galilee, just the Roman name. And he manifested himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, or twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee and two others, seven of them total, uh, were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we will also come with you. They went out and got into the boat. That night they caught nothing. But when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. Yet the disciples didn't know that it was Jesus. So Jesus said to them, he's calling out into the sea, children, do you not have any fish? And they answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat and you'll find a catch. So they cast, and when they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved happened to be John, the author of this gospel. He refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's kind of funny. He said to Peter, it is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, but about 100 yards away, dragging the net full of fish. Kind of the dinghy, think of it that way. When they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you've now caught, Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land full of large fish, 153, but who's counting? And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. So evidently Jesus had a little bit different appearance in a post-resurrected state. We see that in a couple of different places in the Gospels. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and the fish likewise. This is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, 
Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my lambs. He said to him again the second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, shepherd my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? He said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone, will, someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. And he was speaking of Peter's eventual crucifixion on the cross himself. Just two main points from this passage, and then a few applications. First, failure may be a surprise to us, but it's not to God. You're going to fail. And you're going to deal with it internally, spiritually, emotionally, mentally. And how you respond to that failure is going to have an awful lot to do with your character development. All four Gospels contain this story, uh, the story I'm going to talk about, not this story in John 21, but the story of Peter's failure the night that Jesus was betrayed and into the crucifixion. All four. They're all in Jerusalem. A couple of million people would be in that vicinity uh, around Passover week. Positively, the disciples are hoping that Jesus is going to use his superpowers, if you will, to reestablish an earthly world empire. That's what they were all about. That's not what Jesus was about, but they had seen miracles, miracles of every kind, including raising people from the dead. They're thinking, they're in Jerusalem, he's finally owned the fact that he is Messiah, he's God. They're thinking he can do anything, so he's going to use these powers to reestablish an earthly kingdom of Israel, a world empire. Negatively, Jesus keeps alluding to his death. So at the Last Supper, Jesus brings up this morbid subject again, that he's going to die, that he's going to be betrayed. In fact, he's going to be betrayed that night. In fact, he adds a kicker to the prediction this time. Tonight, you will all fall away because of me. In other words, I'm not just going to die. I'm not just going to have, you know, it's going to be bad here for me. But every one of you who have been following me for three years are going to fall away. You're all going to sort of disperse. Nobody's going to be loyal to me. Well, that created a natural outcry among the 12 because they're all thinking, not me. And I'm guessing a little bit here. Fill in the blanks. If you're the disciples, Jesus has just said that he's going to die. I'm guessing it probably created a sense that, since he said they would all fall away, they're thinking, if we don't fall away, then maybe Jesus' view of the future could be reversed. He's saying he's going to die. He's saying we're all going to fall away from him. Maybe if we can just hold it together and be loyal, then that end doesn't need to happen. Speculating a little bit here. Maybe their faithfulness could change the narrative that Jesus keeps talking about in such a morbid fashion. So they push back. No, we're not going to do that. And they're arguing back and forth. And then Peter does what Peter always does. I love Peter. I kind of am Peter in all the negative ways. He just puts himself in the center stage and he made himself famous. He gave us today's sermon. 
Even if everyone else falls away, not me. I never will. It's as if Peter's saying, you know, I get why you don't trust these guys, Jesus. I don't trust them either. I've been fishing with some of them. You should hear the fish stories they told before they knew you. Matthew, he was a crook. We all know that. Judas, who knows what goes on in his head. He is not right in the head. But you can absolutely count on me, the one guy you don't have to worry about. Famous last words. Jesus said, Peter, uh, before the rooster crows, before the rooster announces the dawn tomorrow morning, you're going to deny me three times. I mean, you're not going to just fail. You're going to fail miserably. You're going to deny me. You're going to deny knowing me. Well, they go on from there. We know Judas leaves that supper meal a little bit early. A few words between Jesus and Judas. I'm not sure the others really pick up on it. They go to the garden where Jesus is. You know, we have these soldiers coming towards Jesus with Judas. Judas betrays him with a kiss. Jesus' miraculous powers are, are with him because when they came and asked for Jesus of Nazareth and he said, I am he, the whole crowd fell to the ground. The power of the presence of God in human flesh knocked the soldiers backwards. Well, they get themselves up and they arrest him. Now, Peter determined, you know, he has just heard Jesus predict a pretty significant failure. He pulls a knife. I mean, I love Peter. He is saying, I am not going to, Jesus is wrong about me. He's been wrong about me before. I've been wrong a few times too. Remember that time I tried to walk on water? You know, it, it hasn't always worked out for me either, but Jesus is wrong. I'm not going to die. He pulls a fork, sort of a short-handled, sort of a short sword. Did I say fork? He pulls a sword. He might have had a fork too. You know, hold him with the fork, cut him with. I mean, it may be, it's in the Greek. So he pulls his fork. He pulls the sword. He hacks away at this guy named Malchus and cuts off his ear. Jesus heals Malchus in that moment, allows himself to be taken. Had to be confusing for the disciples. Peter starts following the trial throughout the night. Soldiers take him back to the house of the high priest. I believe it was Caiaphas. The trial starts taking place. It moves around a little bit in the night. Different leaders are brought in. Jesus is transported here and there. He lands at the high priest's house. There's sort of a security gate on the outside of the high priest's house. So he had a large house. He's got sort of a gate, and then there's an outside external courtyard, and the homes are sort of built around that courtyard. Courtyard would have had a fire in the middle of it, maybe a well as well. People are coming and going. It's dark out, but the fire is lighting the night. First denial happens by the fire. One of the servant girls from the high priest's household recognized Jesus. He recognized Peter as one of his followers. She knew the group. And so she says, you know, aren't you one of them? Weren't you with Jesus? And, and Peter just says, I, I don't know what you're talking about. But that was enough to arouse Peter's concerns. And so he decides he's not going to position himself by the fire in the light anymore. So he moves out to the outer gate, which was sort of the security gate for the complex. 
By this time, this servant girl begins to talk to other people about Peter, and she's probably sort of looking over at him in the dark and communicating with a few people, pointing at him. And so then he's approached again, and this time he says, I do not know the man. I love that. Doesn't have a name. I do not know the man. Third time, several bystanders begin to comment that Peter has an accent. They're saying, you know what, you sound like you're from the Northwest a little bit. You know, we're down here in Jerusalem. You sound Galilean. So it does seem like you might be one of Jesus' followers. And again, he says, I do not know the man. It's kind of like when, when you as parents, if you've got kids, you know, your child does something, you know, really great. You're like, that's my boy, Johnny. And when your child does something you're really ashamed of, look at what your kid did. That's the way Peter's acting towards Jesus. I don't know the man. It's impersonal. Doesn't even throw the name in there. And as soon as he did that, the rooster crowed, announcing the morning. I believe only one of the Gospels says this, the Gospel of Luke. Jesus is, I believe, inside, so he must be looking through a window. Jesus' gaze met Peter's gaze at that moment. And Peter ran away and he wept. This was a colossal failure. Peter couldn't believe it. He couldn't believe he did it. But Jesus had predicted it. It's not a surprise to God. And we are no different. Lots of resolutions as we leave church services. Oh, I'm going to do, do what we talked about today. I'm going to do that. I'm going to incorporate that in my life. Lots of commitments. I am never going to do this again. I am never going to sin in the same area. I'm not going to be perfect, but I'm not going to repeat that one. Famous last words. Tomorrow comes. We become repeat offenders. And God's not surprised at all. The problem is, for us, how we handle it at that point. How our tendency is to sort of run from God. How our tendency is to develop a, a lot of shame and, and guilt. And there should be some guilt. I mean, that's the Holy Spirit active in our life, convincing us that the Word of God has been violated. But oftentimes, we don't deal with it well. We kind of give up on ourselves. We kind of give up on God's view of us and that He can still use us. And we move too far away from God when we fail. Which brings us to our second point. God is always moving toward our failure, not away. I love this passage of Scripture and how Jesus sets up this whole event. Many scholars have actually debated whether this chapter belongs in the gospel. We'll say, well, why would they wonder that? Because if you look at the end of chapter 20, it says, therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Kind of looks like a summary. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That is a sort of summary statement for a book. There need not be another verse in this book. It's clear to scholars that is a summary of the book. It looks like a conclusion. And John has concluded his evidence about Jesus, that he's the Son of God. That's the purpose of the book. But the earliest manuscripts that we find of the New Testament include chapter 21. And here's why it's included. There are literary reasons. 
First 12 chapters of Acts. When you go from John into the book of Acts, we've got a problem here because the first 12 chapters of Acts are a biography of Peter's phenomenal leadership in the early church. I mean, he is the man. You know, when Jesus says, you know, upon this rock I will build my church, some say that's upon the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Some, and not just the Catholic Church, by the way, believes that's a statement that the church will be built on the apostleship of Peter. That's a legitimate interpretation. I'm not Catholic, but that's still a legitimate interpretation of that passage, that Peter will be the key foundation piece of the early church. In the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts, he is the man. I mean, he is standing up for Jesus. He's willing to be persecuted. He will say, he will talk about Jesus in public places where he's going to get in big trouble, and it doesn't matter what they say to him. But the last major narrative before that about Peter is this horrible failure. Yes, he saw a resurrected Jesus. There were a couple of moments, you know, the first Sunday night, the next Sunday night when Thomas was there and so on. But Peter's failure is this dark cloud over the whole group of disciples. And it needed a conversation. Peter was kind of one of the spokesmen among the disciples. We can see it. We see it by how prominent he is in all the conversations. He's one of their leaders And the Bible makes little sense going from this failure to the book of Acts without this day on the beach with Jesus. And there's a personal reason it's included, a spiritual reason. Peter's confidence has been destroyed. He expected a demotion probably after that night. But how do you build a movement called Christianity on a three-time loser when Jesus has publicly stated, or these are the words of Jesus, you don't have to make this up. Remember Jesus' famous words, if you deny me on earth, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. I mean, that's the kind of, that's what Jesus said to his disciples and to all of us that we're to be living out our lives, not ashamed of Jesus. And then Peter, number one in the group, went and denied the very knowledge of Jesus. So Jesus goes to Galilee. He knows he needs to help Peter through this. He goes to Galilee. They travel north. Seven disciples are fishing. Now some scholars actually criticize the disciples for going fishing. And they look at John chapter uh, 21 as though, okay, his disciples are sort of walking away from really following Jesus. And they decided to go fishing. It's like they're going back to their former lives. And that's a little bit foolish from a scholarship standpoint because Jesus told them to go to Galilee. He said he was going to meet them there. You know, they had fishing in the, in the family businesses. Maybe they still own the assets, the boats. So they're going fishing. Nothing wrong with that. They put their boat in the sea. They fished all night. Nothing. So there's a man on the shore that they can see, and he yells out to them to try the other side of the boat. Now you're thinking, why didn't they know it's Jesus? Because he's a couple hundred yards away, potentially. Sometimes, in, if, you're, if you're fishing, and I've seen this on big lakes, and certainly you can see this on the Sea of Galilee, sometimes if you're fishing, you're, you're too close to the water, and somebody further away can see how a school of fish is sort of riling up the water, and so that, that's kind of an explanation. If, if this wasn't Jesus performing a miracle, that would be an explanation. Somebody sort of sees a school of fish that they might not see right next to the boat, and so this person calls from a distance, hey, try the right side of the boat as if they see a school of fish forming but we know there's more going on here. But they obeyed. 
They're thinking, okay, we don't see this, somebody else does. The net filled with fish. Now, I don't think this was a drag net like I've described it. The other miracle of Jesus where it almost sunk the two fishing boats that are 27 feet long and seven feet wide and four and a half feet high, that would have been a great drag net, which they would use, hundreds of yards long. This is probably the kind they would toss. The little weights would go down. They'd sort of scoop it up, and you could still catch quite a few fish. That's probably the net they were using. So they cast the net. Immediately, it's, it's full of fish. And then they get it. One of the disciples like, oh, it's Jesus. This is like deja vu all over again. Peter doesn't wait. He jumps into the sea, and he starts swimming. John goes and gets the dinghy, the little boat, brings it out there. They, they get that net connected to the little boat. It's, it's too heavy to pull into that little boat, so they sort of row to shore, pull the net in. Peter then goes back in the water, helps pull the net to shore. 153 fish. Then Jesus had breakfast for them. And then the conversation that had to happen, happened. Now the Greek text is a little nuanced, and most English texts just can't bring all of this out. Nothing, I mean, you lose a little in translation. Not necessarily, you know, theological meaning, but you lose a little of the nuance, and that happens here. And some texts, I think the NIV in translates it this way, not do you love me more than these, but do you really love me more than these? Well, more than these what? More than fishing? Like, are you not willing to give up fishing to follow me yet? More than these other men? Or, you know, you love these other men, you love me? Or do you really love me more than these other men love me? Is your devotion really greater than yours? That's what Jesus is honing in on. Because the last thing that has happened is... Even if everyone else falls away, Jesus, I never will. I am the one guy you can count on. I get it why you're impatient with these other bums, but not me. You know me. You know you can count on me. So now Jesus goes right to Peter, sort of pokes him in the chest. Do you really love me more than everyone else does, Peter? Because I remember Thursday night. You remember Thursday night, Peter? Peter starts to sense the, the shame of his failure. Jesus asked it three times. Three questions matched the three denials. And there's more going on here. When Jesus says, do you love me, the first two times he says, he uses the word agapao, which is why the NIV translates it. Do you really love me? Because that's the word we use for divine love. It's what we're supposed to replicate in our relationships because we know God. Do you really love me? kind of love that I exhibit towards you that may be dying the cross for you? Do you really love me more than these? And then the third time he says, phileo, do you love me? Are we close? Philadelphia, city of brotherly love, do you love me? Am I your friend? So he sort of tapers it down a little to make a point. The first two times Peter answers Jesus, you know that I love you. That's a simple Greek word that just means common knowledge. The third time Peter uses the word gnosko. It's the word in the Old Testament used of a man knowing a woman in an intimate way. Jesus, you know that I love you. You know it. You've experienced it. You, you know me. For three years I followed you. So Jesus is just poking at Peter to fully expose his failure so they can create this reconciliation and move forward. It's as if Jesus is saying, I know and you know what really happened. Let's just get it out in the open and deal with it so you can move on. 
And each time he finished his little interrogation of Peter, finished it with a mission. Feed my sheep, shepherd my sheep, feed my lambs. In other words, he's saying, you're gonna be in a significant role in the church. That's what I want you to focus on. There is a future for you. And then when this conversation was over, he assured Peter, based on his knowledge of all things as God, that it wouldn't happen again. That Peter would be a martyr. And Peter was. In fact, I believe church history says when Peter was hanging on a cross, he asked that he be crucified upside down because he didn't feel he was worthy to die in the same manner as Jesus. So Jesus is telling Peter, after he sort of draws out this painful confession, Peter, you're going to die a martyr. You're going to be faithful. It's okay. There's a future. Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. You're going to be the greatest apostle in the early church. It's time to turn this around. But none of that happens. Acts chapters 1 through 12 never happen if Jesus doesn't pull Peter aside after breakfast by the sea and just deal with it. Have the conversation. And God started the conversation. Jesus set up this whole thing. When we fail... We, we, we have a sense almost that God has fled from us. You know, we're going this direction, he's going that direction, and somehow we're going to have to chase him down and drag him back because we really messed up. Now, the picture we should have in our minds is, is this picture. Jesus is there creating the breakfast where we work it out. It's much like the story of the prodigal son where this, this Jewish boy is just really messed up. He's asked for his inheritance. He, he goes away. He spends it on prostitutes and gambling and everything else, and he ends up being a pig farmer, not very kosher. He loses all his money. He comes back. He just wants to be one of his father's servants. And in that story, which is not about the prodigal son, it's about the loving father, that's what the story's about. In that story, as he's coming back up the road, 30 pounds lighter and a lot slower, dad has been waiting on the porch, looking for him. And when dad sees him, he's not like, yeah, I'm gonna make him beg. I am gonna set a boundary here. We're gonna do some tough love. No, dad runs, he picks up his robes and in, 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 a, in a very sort of embarrassing way for an old Jewish man, he picks up his garments and he runs to his son and he embraces him and even as the son is confessing what he's done, dad's just, just showering him with love and, and the son can hardly blurt out the confession and dad is creating a feast for him and telling the others, Get the, kill the fatted lamb, your, your son, my, my son who was lost is found and, and that's how God is with you when you mess up. He hasn't distanced himself from you. But he does need you to get to the point where you agree about what happened. The word in the scriptures, it actually doesn't appear very often, but the word for confess is homo legeo. Homo means same. Legeo means to say. So confession is just saying the same thing as God. We get to a point where we just agree with God about what happened and about its moral consequences. And that day, Peter and Jesus did a homo legeo. They got on the same page. They agreed about Peter's failure. And then one of the greatest comebacks of all time took place, and Peter became the most prominent leader 
in what we call Christianity, now two billion people worldwide. Just a few applications, the comeback, getting up after failure. First, confession is a good place to start. But confession is a little bit of a confusing topic theologically, and I, I don't want to confuse you, but I want to tell you why I kind of struggle with the concept. I'm not alone. Uh, a lot of scholars, pastors have written about this, have talked about this. The word means to say the same thing as God. The idea that we often carry with us is this, and it's often based on 1 John 1.9, 1, one of the only verses in the Bible in the New Testament where I'm confident this word is used. I don't think this word is used very often. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So it seems like if we don't confess our sins, they, they, we sort of carry them with us, they can't be forgiven. Now, that creates a lot of problems in my mind, like, well, to what extent do we confess our sins? You know, do we have to get them all? Because based on my understanding of Scripture, we're doing a lot of stuff wrong we don't even know half the time. You know, not just sins of commission, things we do, but things that we should have done that we didn't do. And is God keeping track of that? And, and our consciences are not all, you know, sort of calibrated the same. I can tell you after knowing Christians my whole life, they're not. So, and, and you have these passages of scriptures that say some things are sin for some people, but not for others. You know, based on Romans 13, 14. By that, I'm not talking about God's absolute standards. I'm talking about things like if somebody's got you know, sort of an addictive personality. They may not be able to have any alcohol. It might be a sin for them, but somebody who can be temperate, it's not. Those kinds of things. And then there's a bigger problem. The Bible teaches when we come to faith in the first place and agree with God that we are sinners and we need a Savior, the Bible says at that point we are justified. And when we're justified, it means we are declared righteous. If I am declared righteous, and that is my position before a holy God, that the righteousness of Christ has been placed on my account, then whether I'm sinning or not, God still views me as righteous. That positional standing does not go away, which to me makes this confession issue sort of confusing. How can there be sin between me and God if he's declared me absolutely righteous? So, here's my view. When we get to heaven, we'll find out if Pastor Paul was right. I hope you've got bigger questions than that, but I don't know. Here's my view. You don't confess for forgiveness maybe the way you've traditionally thought about it. You confess because you've broken the relationship, the sense of your, your spiritual connection to God. Just like when your child disobeys you and, and you, know, you know a conversation needs to happen for you to be okay with your kid again, for them to be okay with you. I don't think we confess so that God takes care of this stuff. I think we confess so that we feel we can approach God again. Now, then you say, well, what about 1 John 1, 9 then? It is in the Bible, and you say you believe the Bible. Here's what I would say. It's possible, and I'm not the only person who believes this, that 1 John 1, 9 is a salvation verse, like coming to faith for the first time. If you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. It's possible that is a verse about the first time we come to faith and about when we are justified. This is a little bit of a confusing thing. But at a minimum, we are to have this as a practice in our life. 
Peter on the seashore was necessary for him to have confidence that he could serve Jesus again. The Lord's Prayer includes this. It's to be a habit in our lives. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who have debts with us. It's meant to be a habit in our lives so there's restored fellowship, not just with God, but with people around us. So we know it's meant to be a part of our daily walk. Second, forgive yourself which I don't like that word at all, but, uh, but we're going to use it. Forgive yourself, which actually means to accept grace. Can we get that one up there? I think we're one ahead. Forgive yourself, which actually means accept grace, forgiveness. So I don't love the word forgive yourself because to me it's sort of a, not a biblical concept at all. Our failures are not against ourselves. Our failures are against God. We, we don't need to forgive ourselves. We need forgiveness from God. But I think that because we use this term, I just want to frame, if we're going to use it, this is what it really means. It's our inability to forgive ourselves is really our inability to believe in and accept the measure of God's grace and forgiveness that he avails to us. You know, if you say, oh, I just can't forgive myself for what I did. Well, number one, I think that's kind of the wrong thinking. But really what you're saying is, the cross really couldn't cover your failure. can cover everyone else's, but somehow you've gone a little too far. You assume the well of forgiveness is dry. God never had to deal with one of you, you know? We assume we're sort of taxing God's character. You, you haven't invented any new sin. Trust me on that. Because I've tried to invent a few in my life. You haven't invented any sin that God hasn't forgiven a billion times. There's no part of your past behavior, your present behavior that God's surprised by. And he can forgive everything. But one of the things we need to do, and this was hard for me, I just kind of was wired to have a hard time accepting grace for a lot of reasons. You have to learn to accept that what God has done for you, what Jesus did on the cross, is enough and move on. Because if you can't do that, you're hurting yourself and you're failing to exhibit faith in what Jesus really did for you. You have been declared righteous if you're a Christ follower. Declared righteous. Third, don't be surprised or taken off course by failure. It's normal. Now, I'm not trying to make light of bad choices like, oh, Paul says it's not a big deal, it's normal. That would be a misinterpretation of the sermon. I'm saying that much of our life is lived below our expectations and below God's expectations. We all have failures in our careers, but usually we keep quiet about it. Not this Princeton professor who recently shared his CV of failures on Twitter for the world to see. It includes sections titled degree programs I didn't get into, research funding I didn't get, paper rejections from academic journals. Why did he do it? Most of what I try fails, but these failures are often invisible. Well, the successes are visible. I've noticed that this sometimes gives others the impression that most things work out for me. Princeton assistant professor of psychology and public affairs, Johannes Hochschofer wrote in, on the CV. Projecting only success and never recognizing failure has damaging effects. Hochschofer wrote, so he decided to do something about it. 
People are more likely to attribute their own failures to themselves rather than the fact that the world is stochastic. Applications are crapshoots, and selection committees and referees have bad days. This CV of failures is an attempt to balance the record and provide some perspective, he said. But here's what Haushofer called his meta-failure. He said, this darn CV of failures has received way more attention than my entire body of academic work. You know why? Because people want relatable people. When, when we see other people fail, it gives us some hope. I was reading an article about Tom Brady. He's one of the least popular sports figures in, in the world. Tom Brady's a pretty good guy, I think. Now, I can't stand the New England Patriots. That's another issue. But Tom Brady, by all measures, is a good dude. He's a good guy. You know what people don't like about him? The level of winning. He never fails. That's why people don't like him. Perfect wife, perfect career, lots of money. You know, he just, there's no failure. A resume of failures gives us hope because we're like, okay, I can relate to that. I don't have to be perfect all the time. Michael Jordan didn't make his high school basketball team when he was young. Now, I assume he made it later in high school, but there was a point early on. He didn't make his high school basketball team. In my opinion, greatest player of all time. Thomas Edison's teachers said he was too stupid to learn anything. Beethoven's teachers said he was hopeless. What if they all just quit? What if you just quit? I can't live up to this expectations of God. I can't live this Christian life. None of us live it perfectly. And finally, learn from your mistakes. Be better. In his book, The Church You've Always Wanted, Glenn Wagner recounts a story told by Gary Smalley. He said, two moose hunters in northern Canada, true story, shot an unusually huge moose. The two hunters had a problem, however. They couldn't pack this trophy animal out of the woods. It was too big for their pack horses, but not to worry. They got on their cell phones, found a place with reception they called a seaplane. They tried to talk the pilot into ferrying out this huge bull moose. The pilot responded, I don't know if I can take off with that much weight. They said, we've done this before, don't worry. They strapped the moose in, draped it across both pontoons. The pilot begged off, look how far we're sinking below the waterline. I'm the pilot, I know how much it takes to lift off. Relax, trust us, we've done this before. Finally, the pilot agreed. He gunned the engine, took off down his runway of water, crashed into the treetops at the end of the lake. Debris flew everywhere, and the moose carcass lodged in the branches of a tall pine tree. Down on the shoreline, one dazed hunter called out to the other, Hey, George, how'd we do? Well, we're about 50 feet further than last year. So, so no, not a true story. That's not learning from your mistakes. You know, many things we do in life, we do to, to train ourselves for something better. If you, you ever, as, as a person, like lifted weights or trained for something athletically, you continue to put your body under tension. You're trying to train a muscle to develop new capacity. When we fail and we come back to God, we're training our character to develop new capacity. It's exactly what happened with Peter. Jesus on the beach after Peter had failed miserably, learned his lesson. So Jesus could confidently say to him, Peter, not only is that not gonna happen again, I'm gonna build the church on you and you're gonna die for me. You're gonna be a martyr for me. And I'm telling you this now, I know that's the case because he learned. In every one of our lives, 
There are probably a lot of mini comebacks for some of us. Maybe there's some major ones. Maybe we've really messed up in our minds beyond God's capacity. You haven't. You haven't. When you fail, believe that God hasn't run away from you. He's running towards you. Have the conversation with God. Move on. There's a future for you, a great future, one that you can't imagine. But you can't do it if you keep thinking you're running away from God and he's running away from you. God, we thank you for your goodness to us. God, I thank you that you're a God of grace. And I know that in a room this size, there are are a group of people who probably move on from failure very easily. And there are a group of people here who, who are so introspective and they just beat themselves up when they make a mistake and they feel that you're doing the same thing. We're all over the spectrum. I pray that we would take your commands seriously, that we would try to do the right thing all the time. But when we don't, I pray that we would really believe in your grace, that we would come to you and have the conversation necessary where we confess and restore that fellowship we have with you. And I pray that in each of our lives there would be great comebacks from our low points, comebacks that mean we're going to be used greatly by you. And we can take our failures, our mistakes, and we can learn from them propelling us to to try to make a difference in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again, and God bless you.